You're listening to Tramshed Presents. In this edition, showwoman Marissa Kaneski gives us her unique perspective on performance art. We'll hear about her recent masterclass here at Tramshed, and we'll discuss Marissa's use of spectacle in her own productions, from fairground rides to grand ritual and magic illusions to create work that's both popular and provocative. Tramshed's progression producer, Andre Pink, will tell us why he wanted Marissa to be part of his current programme for emerging artists and what it was like for him to be one of Marissa's students. All that coming up on Tramshed Presents. Thanks for joining us for the Tramshed's new podcast, Tramshed Presents. I'm Jason Caffrey. And with me in the pop-up studio here at Tramshed for episode two of our first season, Sequins, Panties and Moustaches, the company's progression producer, Andre Pink. Hi, Jason. And an artist whose productions explore themes ranging from taboos on body art in the Jewish community to migration and displacement, and more recently to attitudes towards menstruation. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Tramshed Presents, Marissa Kaneski. Hello. <laughs> Marissa, you brought your radical cabaret school to Tramshed recently. Um, what did you work on with your students? Well, I try to think new in that I teach practice-based classes, but I'm also a lecturer and I decided to try to combine the two. So I started every session with a kind of history and exploration of contemporary practice, looking at specific themes. Because I think that when people see examples of past and current practitioners and see this work in a wider context, it really helps them vision what they want to do and what their offering might be. And I wanted to relate it to some of the kind of the wider themes that are going on in the world today, because we're living in really extraordinary times, in some ways good and in many ways bad. So we looked at some really interesting contemporary topics and touched on how other artists might be tackling that. And how did that apply to the range of not just abilities in the group but also judging from the showcase which I saw and thoroughly enjoyed there's a range of interests and agendas if you like that the students are bringing themselves. Yeah well I'm a bit of a maximalist (laughs) so I, I like to work with really diverse groups of people. You know cabaret can be anything you want it to be in the way that performance art might suggest but cabaret I think is a more accessible word that speaks to a wider audience and I don't think it frightens people away. I think if you say oh I'm doing performance art people are like oh you want to stand around naked doing nothing whereas if you say cabaret people People go, like, oh, like Liza Minnelli, cabaret. But I think as an introduction to cabaret, we can work with really diverse forms and a variety of forms and just touch on them briefly. And we can work with a really diverse group of people and come out with a with a really interesting showcase. And so not everybody has to be the same. And I prefer to work with mixed genders, mixed heritage, mixed identity, people coming from all different walks of life. I think that's much more exciting because, you know, then you find a commonality that you weren't expecting. And Andre, when you put together this current season, that different take that Cabaret brings was quite a big part of your thinking. Yeah, I mean, there's a different artists working in this season and uh, when I pitched to Jeremy James, the artistic director, the name 
panties, sequins and moustaches. Uh, it makes me laugh. The word panties makes me laugh somehow. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I wanted the season to be a celebration of cabaret, drag, burlesque, and subversion. And I think Marisa, when I invited her, was a bit a blind date in the sense that I hadn't seen your work. I had heard of your work. I had followed and, you know, I go to watch a lot of cabaret. And I have heard a lot about the school, about students that have gone through the school and stuff. So I think that, in a way, you amalgamate all the things of the season. Yeah. That's exactly right, Andre. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Pulling together the different interests of your students into one show that somehow feels cohesive, how does that work? Well, I guess I introduce themes each week that we look at. So everybody's looked at the same stuff, but they are all really diverse people and they come up with different things. But then when we come to put on the show, you know, you're looking to make a dynamic flow. So you don't want too many talking pieces next to each other or too many dance pieces and even in terms of, oh, look, I've got two naked people together. We've got to separate them. <laughs> so the work hung together thematically because everybody had looked at similar themes. So, you know, some people were looking around gender and body image and some people were looking around ecological issues. And then the running order, I mean, it was a big, long show. So it's just about trying to fit those pieces nicely together. And I mean, I guess I have a real socialist heart around the whole way that we do this about it being really democratic and whilst we are kind of playing with the idea of celebrity and stardom and you know performance and audience and applause trying to be democratic in the way we make the work and how people get to speak and voice their opinions trying not to use techniques that expose or humiliate the young artists but trying to kind of build them and help them build their identity and then in the show to not kind of do a kind of who's the headliner and the first piece is the worst piece and all that kind of thing. So just really breaking down those hierarchies and really working with a much more democratic approach to creativity. So grouping things together more in themes and less in kind of, oh, well, Thingy was in a musical and Thingy's in a series on Netflix. So we'll, we'll put them at the end, you know, not doing that. And obviously you still want to have dynamic in the show. So you have an opener and you have a closer and you have the end of your first half. But really celebrating all the talent in the room. And interestingly, sometimes somebody that's come to the course that has had no performance experience comes up with something so much more exciting and interesting than somebody that has had lots of experience. So there is a, you know, making new performance is about creativity and it is democratising. My course is not about skill. It's about ideas and it's about original ideas and new voices. Well, let's just get a little taste of some of those original ideas and those new voices right now. Now, if you ain't been out in Croydon before, <laughs> you probably want to know what it's like. Well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> in a song, what I wrote. Spotlight. Theatre. Tranchette Woolwich. 21st, February. I know what you're thinking. Why are the mermaids working as a toilet attendant? <laughs> well, it's such a long story, babes, I couldn't possibly do it justice now. And I can see you're washing your hands and it's a private moment and all in it, but I just had to say something. You look absolutely gorgeous right now. No, seriously, you do. Like, honestly, if I could pull off a skirt like that, but it really, really stinks. <laughs> no, no, you look like sex on legs right now. I bet all the boys are all over you tonight. I mean, I know, well, I've met, well, 
I have led a lot of men to their Wolverine graves, if you know what I mean. <laughs> There's a, a little taste of some of the performances at the showcase. To get there, you talked about not wanting to humiliate and overexpose. How do you get the balance right between pushing your performers sufficiently out of their comfort zone so that they're exploring something new while keeping them feeling comfortable to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's a fine line. And we do develop performance skills, but not in a traditional classroom stage school setting. So we play around with how you devise material. I mean, I get people to draw on their own stories and do lots of creative writing as part of what we do. And we do do, you know, voice warm-ups and physical warm-ups, and we do work a lot with stage presence. But I start from very, very simple things, and then we work up to something very complex. And, you know, at all times, I think it's about not exposing one person and giving them too much praise and then not giving anybody else you know it's about trying to find a real equality and really give people the praise they need and the encouragement they need for the level that they're at and find the best thing about every piece and really give everybody as much equal time as possible and really get them to see where their material lives in a wider cultural landscape the thing is you can feel very alienated and one of the great things about you know making new performance and cabaret and short form performance you know and this whole tradition of exploring your identity through performance is you can then relate and identify with a wider group of artists so for every artist that comes in there's an artist we can reference that would really speak to them and it's about giving them those references which helps build confidence so you can then do a monologue you know you've discovered all of a sudden Karen Finley from New York doing a monologue about homelessness or something and then you can do a monologue that you want to write so just really giving people wide references I think and giving them a wide berth to be creative and I'm really about people finding their voice finding their performance identity and coming to confidence with that by understanding that in a wider cultural context. And Andre I want to bring you in here because you took part in this I did indeed class didn't you which is it wasn't something that you set out to do at the beginning I believe. Marisa was going to do a lecture in every session, right? And I, I stayed for the first one. And Marisa is a great storyteller. She's like a tree of wisdom <laughs> and knowledge and information. She's kind of blushing there a little bit, but I'm sorry. There's so much that you offer as you really open our idea of what art can be or what performance can be, I think. I come from like a physical theater background and lots of the artists that you talk about, I think that they really, it's transformative. And I think that when you said you work with the world of ideas, I think that uh, like my training, for instance, I train with Goulier, which comes from the Jacques Lecoq, kind of physical theater family of school. And it's very much about doing. You don't have any time to think or there's no research. And Marisa works in a completely different way. And uh, I asked for her to stay in the class and there was a little bit of a conflict there. And I think that I felt that uh, if I didn't take part, I probably wouldn't have been able to stay because there's something about the safe environment that she creates that when you're speaking about taking risks. If I was there as an, just a member of the process it would be different of being like an outsider peeping into the work yeah. yeah I mean I think if people are going to reveal stuff it's difficult to have somebody 
looking from the outside. And to build a group, it has to be a full group of practitioners. And I think because I'm trying to bring quite experimental approaches to the work, the minute you have somebody watching that's not getting up and doing it, it completely changes the dynamic. And I'm super glad that I have stayed, actually. And it was very transformative for me. I'm interested in that because you're an experienced practitioner, certainly much more than the other students that would have been in the group. So I'm really interested to hear how it challenged you and where it took you that you hadn't explored before. I think that there's something about, it's almost like it's working very much from within. I think that I remember the first session that we had that uh, I think we were working a lot with very simple emotions. I think it was anger or joy or pride. And there's something quite ritualistic about the approach as well. There's almost like an, a magical element, yeah, or an element of conjuring. And for me, there was a lot of material that was very personal. It's very much about us. What are the taboos for you? What is it that you want to talk about? And your personal demons, right? <laughs> yeah, I did a big thing about demons. But I guess tapping on the taboo is things I'm really interested in and getting people to explore that, which is kind of coming from a live art practice that you would do that but yeah looking at themes around ritual to create group so it's not a religious workshop and I'm not using rites from any specific religious practice but I'm using some techniques that groups of avant-garde artists have used that do draw on more esoteric traditions to create group energy and to explore transformation in the self and you know I went to a Lecoq workshop where I was told to kind of jump around like a string of spaghetti boiling in a pan and I was just really bored by that I didn't work that way I mean I think we're all striving for truth and to then put that truth onto the stage on some level but you know I need circles and taboos and rituals and politics and I need a lot more than spaghetti in a pan to get me off the floor, personally. <laughs> so I try to do that with everyone that comes into the room. And then the, just one thing about the process, I think there's something about the work, Jason, that, uh, that it, then it becomes about uh, getting rid of the excess. As we were working, I think a lot of Marisa's work was like really giving space for us to investigate and and, and to, to really find within us what is it that we wanted to talk about, whatever that would be, but also like then to remove all the fat, right? Yes, yeah, so exactly. So in a way, we go through lots and lots and lots of material to find the taboo in you, to find the thing that you need to address and you need to break to go into that zone where you have the audience and you have transcended your uh, limitations. You know, I've got all these exercises that I've done for years, but when I'm in them and when I'm doing them with people, you do really go into, you know, the zone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you do go into the flow and you become immersed in the experience of creating. And that's the exciting moment when it doesn't matter what the exercise is about. It's just a construct through which you are trying to get this energy to be focused and to become performance, I guess. Let's just hear a little bit of the energy that Andre's own taboos brought forward because I've got a <laughs> clip of Andre performing. Just hold on to your hats. Look at my hair. It's getting really white. Yeah, really, really. I have no time. My act. No time. My hair is freezy. No time for shampoo. No time. My act. 
my feet. I show, I show my feet. My toes, so big. No time. My act, look, look, so big. Sex. Andre's star turn, if we can call it that in the uh, democratic world of Karniski's radical cabaret. Uh, what I'd like to turn to now is come back to the subject of taboos. And maybe a place we could start with this is with uh, what is uh, quite an old piece of work now for you, which is Jewess Tattooess, um, which very much relies on taboos start to finish. Just tell us about how that piece of work came about and and where it brought you to. Yes, and before I do that, I just want to say that listening to that, Andre, was it's brilliant. I mean, you know, you really have a voice in that and it's really interesting and moving. Anyway, uh, Jewess Tattooess was a piece I made because uh, I'm from a Jewish family and I chose to get covered in tattoos. <laughs> so, you know, I was always really influenced by kind of punk rock and alternative culture and London subculture. I grew up in North London. I was exposed to subculture and nightclubs and Susie Sue and, you know, punk rock and all of that was really huge for me. And so I got all these tattoos and I was really into bands and alternative culture. And I just thought, what is the question in in my life that I can't answer? And it was like, how does who I am and who I'm becoming fit with where I'm from? And I think especially in kind of multicultural, diverse communities that we have in London, this happens in so many families and generations where you've got a very traditional upbringing and then you've got something that really jars against that, but there's still all the love there. And I wanted to explore my identity as a tattooed Jewess through the medium of experimental cabaret and live art. Um, but that piece, I did one version of it that went round the Battersea Art Centre and I had these huge tattooed canvas arms that my tattooist had made for me and I laid on a bed of nails and it was me as a kind of fairy tale Jewish grandma and then me as a rabbi and it was me having a dialogue with myself about well, should I have had the tattoos or shouldn't I have had the tattoos but then I changed the show and I did a scene that was like the scene in Fiddler on the Roof with the ghost with the really long nighty. so I was up on stilts with a really long dress on like a ghost and I was trying to do kind of Yiddish folk tales influenced by like Isaac Bashevis Singer and Fiddler on the Roof which was the culture of my grandparents and my parents and mix that with kind of tattooed contemporary circus feminism and they actually do fit together quite interestingly <laughs> so I mixed these two worlds together but then I did a kind of more live arty version I call it so I had one where it was quite literal monologues and then I kind of evolved it and did one where I had this big Star of David on the floor, which was based on an old illusion I'd seen where my head came through the Star of David. Then I kind of slithered out of it and I had in the corners of the star, I had all these different objects that I interacted with and I did all the monologues. So this was the, the difference between live art and cabaret. When I did the cabaret version, I put a lot of emotion into my voice and I like pretended to cry <laughs> and then when I did the live art version I did everything in a really deadpan voice and when I did everything in a really deadpan voice I got programmed in a lot more art festivals because you know the emotion was kind of pulled back and 
it was kind of classy and arty. When I was crying and screaming, it was in like visual theatre, but, you know, more in a cabaret. So it's, there is such a kind of idea of what makes something art and what makes something not art. And I'm just really into breaking all that. You know, you make the work you want to make and, and let the curators deal with that problem. That shouldn't be what drives the artist. And I, so I made that work when I was... In my late 20s, I'm in my late 40s now, so I made that work 20 years ago and I literally made two versions so I could get it taken seriously. And so, you know, the arty one got programmed in like... LA International Festival next to Forced Entertainment to Mikhail Baryshnikov and the less arty one, you know, I was doing it down working men's clubs and it was the same material. So I mix lots. I'm really interested in mythology, symbolism and history and ritual, mixing lots of things together in fairy tales. So I'm not going to give up my having fun on stage and enjoying doing monologues and do everything like really deadpan with, you know, a, a bare light bulb and like no expression just because that's what people think is art. I get quite frustrated with that. And you talk about ritual there and that is one of the threads at least that joins that 20-year-old piece to what you're working on now because, well, you've completed a PhD and out of that came Dr Karneski's incredible bleeding woman. Yes, well, it was the other way around actually. So I, I started the PhD did some research, made the show, and then the written thesis is practices research, which means doing the show and the process of making the show is the research. And so the thesis is the writing up of what it was to make that show. And then it becomes part of the doctorate. So the doctorate is both the show, the making of the show, the doing of the show, and writing about all of that. Uh, so I couldn't have written the thesis if I hadn't have done the show. And this is what we like to call practices research, as I learned. But I'd always been doing practices research, but I'd never understood that that's what I was doing. But the menstrual one is is a long story. <laughs> I don't know if you've got time for it. Well, before we try and get into a, a sort of potted version of that story, let's just hear uh, what's a trailer for Dr Karneski's Incredible Bleeding Woman. Hello. My name is Dr. Karneski. What if I told you that the origins of all magic was menstrual? Would you believe me? The menstruants are a group of radical cabaret artists. We came together every dark moon for three months in South End. And together we created and reinvented menstrual rituals. The revolution will be bloody. The revolution will be menstrual. So that's, that was uh, dubbed from a, a video trailer, actually, wasn't it? So a bit of the story of that piece. And I, I'd like to try and bring Andre into the conversation as well, because I know Andre's interested in the themes that you use in your work and, and how you describe it yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think that you would think, and most people would think that the theme of the show and the way I just described it before, and it's a PhD, that it would be very boring and very serious. And I think you can hear from my trailer that this is quite B-movie-ish and funny. So I came up with this idea that we were going to make this show about 
reinventing menstrual rituals. And I pulled together this really interesting team of cabaret artists. And one was Fancy Chance, who's one of the world's only hair hangers. She's also a stand-up comedian and burlesque dancer. Um, and that's somebody who hangs from their hair. She hangs from her hair. She's one of the only women in the world that does it. And then um, I brought Missa Blue, who is a very rare female sword swallower. I brought in Rhiannon Stiles, who is a Lecoq-trained mime artist, but a trans activist and writes a column for Cosmopolitan, actually, I think it is. So we had her, and then we had H. Pluis, who's a contemporary dancer and performance artist, and her child, who actually was born during the process. And then uh, now a guy from the Frank Chickens who came on as our technician and then actually joined the team and the cast and we all were in the show. And I decided to do the process in a completely new and experimental way. So we followed anthropological research on menstrual rituals in indigenous cultures and different cultures around the world and menstrual rights. And we met every dark moon and we only created the work under certain circumstances. And then I present the show as a kind of crazy hammer house of horror type anthropologist. And you don't know if I'm a real doctor or a fake doctor. But I'm really revealing real anthropological research and I'm really revealing research about menstruation and the origins of culture and menstruation in culture and how it's kind of devalued and overlooked. And we think of it as something very medical and sort of about hygiene. So I'm not looking at the science or people's physical problems. I'm looking at the cultural representation and the rituals around menstruation that have been lost in our culture. And in contemporary culture worldwide, it remains a, a very negative yes. thing. Yes, it does. But it's it's changing. There's been a resurgence of interest from lots of different aspects, a lot around period poverty and around inequality and finding equality for girls. But my specific area of research was around, um, I looked both at indigenous human cultures and the way they did have menstrual rituals and rites. But then I also looked at how, as feminists, we can reclaim and reinvent menstrual rituals. And I looked at menstruation in anthropology and in symbolic imagery and in mythology and in myths, really looking at the power of it and, and then looking at it in a kind of wider eco-feminist agenda. So I'm looking at notions of cyclicity and I'm looking at biologists like Donna Haraway and looking at the generative. So this was my thesis, but that all got boiled down to, I got a group of really amazing cabaret artists together and only in certain phases of the moon did we make these bits of cabaret? And of course that sounds really like, whoa, way out there, hippy-dippy. And we played with the fact that it sounds really way out there. So we we're looking at a taboo. We're doing it in a really kind of almost populist way. And we're absolutely serious. And we really are doing rituals. And we really are witches. And no, but we really are actually a huge bunch of comedians and circus performers. We're all of those things at once. And um, yeah, we're just trying to be really clever, basically. <laughs> Maybe a bit too clever, which is why we didn't get programmed as many places as I'd have liked. You talk about taboos and being way out there. And, and I know, Andre, that those are things that form a common thread through the current season. But what Marissa's talking about in ritual, that really stands out for me. Does it stand out for you in, in the context of the current progression season? Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, there's something also personal, something about being an outsider, which I feel that I bring 
in my practice in the sense that I'm Brazilian and the way that we make work is very different. Brazil is a much more ritualized culture. We are very syncretic in the way that kind of Catholicism and Afro-Brazilian religion is really ingrained in, in the way that we live. We're very much more superstitious. And I think that there's something about processes in the UK and how you make work that are very fast and very led by the head because you have very little time to put on a play. I mean, there's more devising and more collaboration, more risk-taking now than there was maybe when I came to this country 20 years ago. But it's still very much led by a very patriarchal, the idea of time being the time that it's exact, which is very different from the feminine time in which Marisa works, which is like the time of the cycle of the moon or the cycle of the sea or the tides, which is, it's much more about process than result. Back home, we make work in much more time. And it's a very different way of just allowing things to breed and grow and develop. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so we were constrained by certain funding and everybody has to work. And Britain is a very commercial, corporate place to create work. And everything is very hemmed in by health and safety. But we had this house for whole weekends, once a month, every month. And then we also would meet in another time in the month. So we created the work over a kind of three-month period. But some interesting things happened. So some magic actually happened. And that's that became the narrative of the show in that, you know, one of the participants, she really wanted to become pregnant. And after she had been struggling and then after doing these menstrual rituals for three months, she got pregnant. And then on the premiere of the show, her baby was... She couldn't do the show that night because that's when she gave birth on International Women's Day. Wow. <laughs> and we then put that baby, who's called Sula, into the show and Sula became part of the cast. And we always only had six members. And I was just like, oh, I wish we had kind of seven members because it would be like more witchy. It would be more like a coven. And then our seventh member was conceived <laughs> in the process <laughs> and born on International Women's Day. And then she joined the cast. And just returning to that comment that Andre made and I could see you kind of nodding and smiling about how much time is taken to create work and your current work show woman ritual action that that's a, a work in progress and how long has it been a work in progress well interestingly before I did the menstrual show I was a, a fellow at the University of Sheffield and I, I was looking at this idea of the show woman but then at the time I was running this ghost train and we got this contract to run it with Blackpool Council, working with local young performers, setting up this great project. So I couldn't go ahead and make the show woman show then. And then I decided to make the bleeding woman show was my PhD. So I've come back to the subject of the show women. And what's interesting is, is when I was going to do it before, I was just going to say, oh, well, you know, a show woman could be equal to a show man and a show woman's like a show girl. But I come back having done the, the menstrual show with this whole thesis on cyclicity and the showwoman if she comes from the showgirl the showgirl is part of a collective she's part of a line and so if the showwoman is the grown-up showgirl she's different to the showman because the showman exploits the marginalized people whereas the showwoman grows from the collective and she's like a represents the collective so she's like a, a protest eco-feminist warrior in my new thesis the word showman that comes from variety and entertainment has become synonymous with a kind of um 
is a cultural meme. It's a trope. So you you would call Donald Trump a showman. Any man that has bravado and spectacle, you go, oh, he's a real showman. So my proposition in making this work is that we start to circulate the word showwoman into the culture because we only have showgirls. There's a, there's a clear inequality there. And I'm saying that if the showman is synonymous with exploitation of the marginalised people, the showwoman has grown up from being a marginalised showgirl. So therefore, she should hopefully represent the very opposite and their Therefore, she should be able to fight patriarchal injustice. And that's why I'm making a show called <laughs> Showwoman Ritual Action. And in the process as well, something that we haven't really explored a lot is your work teaching. Obviously, you, you brought the Radical Cabaret School here to Tramshed and that came out of another teaching project. You're in contact with a lot of young artists, showmen, showwomen. Yeah, how do you characterise the challenges in front of them, not just in going into the theatre or cabaret industry, but in following the kind of pathway that you've pursued, which is, as you say, it's hard to categorise, it doesn't always attract bookings in the same way as other things do? Well, hopefully, by the time they need to get bigger grants and programme, more people like me will be in power. <laughs> That's what we're hoping um, and we'll be able to give them those breaks. But no, I mean, you know, we need artists and we need artists to make work. And so lots of the people that I started teaching 10 years ago are now forging a professional practice. And on, on Friday, I went to see one of the artists that came to me when he was 19. And they're now not a he, they're now a they. And they're now called Oozing Gloop. And they've got a great amazing piece. They're the world's first autistic green drag queen, as they call themselves, and exploring all issues around disability. And the work is poetry. And, and Uzenglut was a, a student of politics before they decided to be a live artist. So it's all about conspiracy and theory. It's very clever. You know, so there are, in some ways, there are more opportunities than when I was starting, because there wasn't really a cabaret scene in London. We had to forge that. And then, you know, people that I was working with in my 20s, like Ducky, now have the power to program things and we're trying to find diverse ways. But obviously we're in difficult times. We don't know the future of funding and arts funding. So people face more challenges, but they face different challenges. But, you know, at the moment, some of the artists I've worked with from 10 years ago are now getting out there and touring and having an impact and, and doing fresh new things. So... I just hope that people carry on making work and I like to be part of that continuum. Well, I think on that optimistic note, we'll bring the conversation to a close. That's all for this edition of Tramshed Presents. Thank you to Marissa Kaneski for sharing her insight and experience. And thank you to Andre Pink, not only for his expert guidance, but also for the unforgettable part he played in Kaneski's radical cabaret. In the next edition of Tramshed Presents, we'll meet the critically acclaimed all-female non-binary theatre and cabaret company, PEX. Until then, thanks for listening. Listener.